Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So hi again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And today we're very excited to have Dr. Ahmed Bhatt and Dr. Emery Gorgon here. They're the co-directors of the Endoluminal Surgery Center here at the Cleveland Clinic. Gentlemen, welcome to Butts and Guts. Good morning. Good morning, and thanks for having us. So Ahmed, we'll start with you, since Emery is a returning guest back from 2018, and we always like to start out with everybody telling a little bit about yourself, where are you from, where'd you train, and how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Hey, Scott, thanks for having us. Uh, So I was born in England, grew up around the world, and came to Cleveland Clinic for my internal medicine residency, stayed for my GI fellowship, advanced endoscopy fellowship, and ended up staying on as staff. And Emery, for those who haven't listened to the episode back then, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks again also for having us and being here second time is a true privilege. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey and uh, raised there, did my medical school as well as residency, then uh, moved on to United States where I did uh, repeat my residency training and fellowship. And then I've been on full faculty here at Cleveland Clinic Colorectal Surgery since 2011. Well, we're very excited to have both of you on. And so for all of the listeners out there, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the different podcasts, which can provide a little bit more robust information about what we're going to talk about today being endoluminal surgery. But Emery, we'll start with you. So we've discussed surgical endoscopy with Dr. Ponsky on butts and guts in the past, but can you give a high level overview just in first and foremost about what endoscopy is, what the type of procedures are included in that term, and kind of why these procedures are needed. Surgical endoscopy is an evolving area uh, in, the med- in medicine, and more and more we see the need for more minimally invasive and creating less morbidity for our patients uh, rather than doing these major abdominal surgeries or open surgeries there's a trend to uh, to be more minimally invasive and towards that goal flexible endoscopy fits extremely well Uh, it allows us to use natural orifices if you will like the mouth or anus or vagina for gyn areas and then using these advanced uh, technologically advanced methods and and tools do advanced procedures, and I think that's what we're going to be talking next uh, 15, 20 minutes or so today. So, Amit, the the goal with a lot of these things is to take out polyps and even early cancers, but what is the scope of how often this comes up, and how would a patient know if they needed any sort of these procedures that you have, or sometimes these things have no symptoms at all? A very good point, Scott. just wanted to build on what Emery said is uh, sort of this is forefront of endoluminal surgery is about doing things minimally invasive and operating through an endoscope to take out tumors or lesions that traditionally required surgery. The majority of lesions that we can take out endoscopically or through endoluminal surgery are those with a low risk of going to lymph nodes. So the major difference between endoscopic resection of a tumor and surgical resection of the tumor is absence of lymph node dissection or taking out the lymph nodes with endoscopic technique. And what that means is endoscopic resection should only be performed 
on tumors or lesions that have a low risk of going to lymph nodes, and those are generally the earliest cancers or precancerous lesions that we see. The majority of these lesions do not cause symptoms, and they're either found on screening tests or serendipitously when somebody goes through an upper endoscopy, maybe for abdominal pain or other symptoms, and are found to have an early esophageal or gastric cancer. So I should make a note to the listeners that to put this all in reference, there's about 30,000 colon and rectal resections just for the lower polyps alone uh, for non-cancerous lesions. And uh, gentlemen, obviously we have both of you on here because Ahmed, as a uh, gastroenterologist, you in this type of setting, you focus more on the upper GI polyps and Emory, more on the lower ones. So walk me through a little bit about how you two came together with this idea of this endoluminal surgery center to join forces and and what prompted you to see the need for this and how to work together to build the center yeah this is very exciting actually amit and i'm uh, looking forward to work together and we have been working for a while now uh, it is uh, actually unique in its sense that you know this is a collaboration that i don't think exists in many other centers and this is gonna help to streamline our patients' uh, their needs. What I mean by that is that our center is very patient-focused. That's going to help streamline any patients that will uh, need advanced endoscopic procedures. As you mentioned, there is extremely high need in the United States nationwide. More than 30,000 colectomies, colon resections, removal of a 10, 12 inch of colon uh, is performed for a benign polyp. You can imagine how drastic that is. And same thing applies even with higher morbidities or complications potentially to remove a colon. So our goal is help uh, patients in need uh, having this type of lesions, benign or precancerous lesions, whether it's in upper GI or in the lower GI area. I'm very excited to work with Emery Gorgon. We share the same passion of delivering minimally invasive care to patients with precancers and early cancerous lesions of the GI tract. In parallel, both of us sort of started our independent program. Emory focused on the lower end of colon polyps and early colon cancer, while my interests have been in early esophageal, gastric cancer, and polyposis of the upper tract. Both of us, at the infancy of these techniques, went to Japan over seven years ago to learn where these techniques were developed, being endoscopic submucosal dissection, endoscopic mucosal resection, and bringing those techniques back to the clinic so we can help our patients here. We've been doing this for the last six years with phenomenal outcomes, and our programs have really grown over time. Uh, and our collaboration is about sharing ideas, resources, and putting our minds together in an area that we're passionate about so we can deliver the best care to patients and most efficiently. And as Emery said, the awareness of these techniques is limited and the majority of patients are still undergoing traditional invasive surgery to get these lesions removed that could benefit from endoscopic surgery. Let's build upon that last point. So if I'm a patient out there listening and say, wait a minute, so you're telling me that we have all of these particular tools that are available, but my surgeon or my gastroenterologist said I got to have a resection for that? Is, is that wrong? Uh, no, that, that's not wrong. The majority of cancers or tumors 
do require surgical resection. But there are a subset of patients with the early type of cancer that have a low risk of it spreading outside of the GI tract to the lymph nodes that can benefit and have curative resection from endoscopic standpoint with the same oncologic outcomes as surgery, but these patients maintain their quality of life, their GI tract, and up to two weeks after an endoscopic resection go back to the same type of lifestyle that they had before. Though differentiating these two types of patients is very important. And that's why when a patient comes to the clinic for, let's say, early esophageal or early gastric cancer, they would undergo a multidisciplinary assessment. We would complete their staging with CAT scans, a PET scan, endoscopic ultrasound, and then they would see a surgeon, an oncologist, and a gastroenterologist, or a colorectal surgeon. And then we would decide in a multidisciplinary tumor board what is the best treatment for that patient. If that ends up being endoluminal surgery, or ESD, then we would go ahead with that. So Emery, walk me through, I'm a patient out here, and I was told by my referring physician or my primary care provider that, hey, listen, I want you to go up to the clinic and I want you to see Dr. Corgan in the Endoluminous Surgery Center. What can that patient expect when they come to see you in clinic? Walk me through that journey that they're about to have. Sure. I think you bring up a very good point. Is it wrong or not? I think I can start from there. If patient is diagnosed with a, a large lesion in the colon and referred to a surgeon for, to have their colon removed, I think that's where it starts. This is important for patients to understand that if they don't have a cancer diagnosis, maybe there is another option for them. Maybe there is a possibility that w without remo getting their colon removed, a large intestine taken out, there is a possibility that we can help these patients. So, and, and this is a very common scenario that a lot of our patients search and then they come and find us. And I think what we are going to help with these patients is even further in the future with, the, with, with our center and helping right now is that we're going to make this more uh, easy for them. So all they need to do is come in, call us, uh, get an appointment, and, and we will meet with them, look at their uh, findings and studies. It's very important for us to see their uh, previous colonoscopy images or upper GI endoscopy images, and we prefer to have them definitely in, in color, colored pictures and definitely investigate into them. Some of, some of them are uh, biopsied before, so we get the, their pathologies uh, also, uh, also reviewed here at our center and make, to make sure that what they have been diagnosed with is really accurate and what they were recommended in terms of treatment plan is, uh, is really what they need. So we, we, we want to make the best decision, best treatment option for them that is out there. Ahmed, I'm going to backtrack to you. You mentioned a lot of different things that can happen. And granted, there's differences between the upper GI tract and the esophagus or the stomach and the lower GI tract with the colon and the rectum. You talked about a PET scan and an ultrasound that can happen and uh, this multidisciplinary evaluation. So in clinic, what can they see? Do they get a scope in clinic? Do they get other tests that are set up? What are these different tests that you're talking about based on where the lesion is? This is if a patient came with an early cancer, this would be the setup that we want to do. And in the treatment of cancer, it is important to properly stage a cancer accurately. That allows us to decide what is the best treatment for a patient. Endoscopic resection is not always the best option if the tumor is more aggressive. So we first like to start off before patients even see us in clinic is to complete that staging workup. The first part is to do a CAT scan and PET scan together. And this allows us to make sure that the tumor hasn't left its GI tract to another organ within the body. 
Next is an endoscopic ultrasound, which is a very simple procedure, very similar to an upper endoscopy or colonoscopy. An anesthesiologist gives them some medication to make them sleepy and comfortable. We pass a thin scope through their mouth, down their esophagus, into their stomach. And there, an ultrasound probe, and the same way an ultrasound can see a baby in a woman's belly, when we put an ultrasound in the stomach or esophagus, it allows us to see beneath the surface, and allows us to see how much of the esophageal wall is involved by the the tumor. This gives us an idea if this is involves just the superficial layers or the deeper layers. Once this information is derived, then the patient would see um, an endoscopist in clinic, um, a surgeon, so if it's an esophageal cancer, a cardiothoracic surgeon, an oncologist. We will review the data, the health of the patient, go over the details, and talk about this patient in a tumor board, and within a short time frame of about a week, we'll make a decision on what we think is the most optimal treatment for that patient, and then schedule the next test. Emory, obviously the lower GI tracts are sometimes a little bit different, so what type of tests, if any at all, could they expect to receive based on this, either at their local institution when some of these things come up or here when they come and see us at the clinic? Yes, it's a very different aspect between upper GI and lower GI from what Dr. Bud explained. Uh, we do not routinely use uh, ultrasound in the lower GI tract, but we do use a lot of diagnostic tests in terms of visualization of a lesion. And these surface anatomy features which means looking at the polyp itself with high definition scopes, whether it is also chromoendoscopy, confocal laser, there are a lot of technologies out there that we are happily utilizing here to understand the, the nature of the polyps, the nature of the lesions. If the lesion is really highly suspicious for cancer, probably and advanced endoscopic techniques for most cases are not uh, not the best approach. However, if there's no need or no risk involved with uh, high-risk features for cancer, then these are good cases for uh, advanced endoscopic removal. Ahmed, do they go to sleep for this? Walk me through the actual procedure itself. Now that it's go time, they said you are a candidate to have this advanced endoluminal surgery. What can they expect on game day and what can they expect during the procedure? So this is an endoscopic procedure that requires anesthesia to do deep sedation. So what's involved is the patient would have nothing to eat or drink after midnight, stop any blood thinners about five days before the procedure. They would show up for the procedure, uh, we would take them back, an anesthesiologist would put them to sleep, and we temporarily put a breathing tube in, and this is partly to just to protect the airway and stop any blood or fluid from going into the lungs. The endoscopic resection or ESD procedure can take anywhere between one hour to two hours to perform. And we do this by exploiting the fact that the GI tract wall is made out of five layers. The middle layer, the submucosal layer, is a potential space. So when we inject fluid into this potential space, it increases the size of the layer and allows us to enter the endoscope into the wall of the GI tract, dissect underneath the tumor, removing the tumor in one complete piece while leaving the integrity of the GI tract in place. The scope is removed and the patient is then woken up and taken to recovery. The vast majority of patients go home after their procedure, 90% plus. 
our recommendations are clear liquid diet for three days, three days of soft food, and then they go slowly transitioning back onto their regular diet. The majority of patients are back to their normal pre-resection self within a week or two after the procedure. Emery, I gotta ask you the downside of this, not everything can go smooth as silk. So what are some of the potential complications that patients should be aware of that can occur with any one of these particular procedures? ESD or advanced endoscopic procedures obviously are very interventional uh, methods and they are higher risk than regular colonoscopy or your routine diagnostic tests. Why? Because we do more intervention. Like Amit mentioned, there's injection, there's cutting. So it, that's why we prefer to refer this as endoluminal surgery. So we're starting to do more and more interventions, procedures, cutting, traction intraluminally inside of the bowel so this is more advanced leap forward approach of course that can lead to higher rates of what we call perforations or rupturing the colon however these risks are very very small and th that's also the beauty of our center collaborating between surgeons and uh, gastroenterologists we can immediately take care of these uh, by putting a laparoscope in putting a scope uh, like a gallbladder surgery type of approach with the camera and instruments puncture holes into the abdomen and close these defects, or even if needed, immediate uh, real-time uh, bowel resection if, let's say, if the tumor looks really suspicious when we're doing this procedure or the hole is uh, large enough that cannot be closed with endoscopic or laparoscopic techniques. Ahmed, I've heard you both say before that this is not a one-and-done shop. This is something that you're going to follow patients ahead. So what can patients expect after the procedure? I, I, do you guys see them again? How often do you see them again? Do you refer them back? Obviously, if they come from a ways away, that may not be the case. But what is the general expectation about how you follow some of these more advanced non-cancerous or early cancerous lesions? I think one of the most important parts of the endoscopic treatment of cancer is actually the follow-up. One of the, the downsides of endoscopic resection of cancer is while we allow the patient to keep their native organ, while that allows them to keep their quality of life, it's also the same organ that developed the cancer in the first case. And these patients are at risk of developing an additional cancer later on in their life. So the best thing that we can do to keep their quality of life going long term is to make sure that we do a good surveillance program so if any tumor does occur, we can catch it early. For a patient that's in, would like to come to the Cleveland Clinic and it is practical for them to come, we would love to take care of them. We want to become their medical home, a place that they can come to, get their surveillance tests done, and other checkups. For, for instance, for an esophageal tumor, we would recommend an upper endoscopy and CAT scans every six months for the first two years, then yearly afterwards. For those patients who come from out of states, and it's really not practical to come here to the Cleveland Clinic, we're happy to work with the referring doctor to make sure those surveillances get done. So as we wind down here, uh, I will ask the both of you, Emery, I'll start with you. What's on the horizon as far as you can see in terms of research into endoluminal surgery and making sure that we achieve the best patient outcomes? Yes, uh, research is very important and it's a crucial aspect of our center as well. We have uh, multiple projects together moving forward. So one of them check the recurrence rates and of course we look at our experiences here and outcomes. Uh, additional uh, benefits of this procedure is also of course the uh, minimal burden on the healthcare uh, in terms of the cost. So we are also checking our experiences from this perspective. Also creating possibly CPT codes and 
and uh, how we can document and code these in our healthcare system. Additionally, the other aspect of your question is what, what are the next advancements in the, in the horizon? We are very excited also to be the leading center in terms of uh, bringing the endoluminal surgery to the next level. How can we do that? We, there is a lot of technologies and ideas that also we have to increase our abilities intraluminally inside of the intestine to bring more instruments, maybe in the sense of different platforms or or even uh, endorobotics uh, and be able to do more complex procedures endoluminally. This can even lead us to the next level, even going through the bowel and possibly or potentially doing procedures intra-abdominally using these natural orifices. Amit? Absolutely. This is actually one of the the exciting parts of our collaboration is that both me and Emery are on the forefront of helping develop new technologies in our animal labs, working together to make these procedures easier and safer to perform. Some of these devices we've actually developed ourselves within the Cleveland Clinic and are helping with the commercialization. And we're looking for them to become public uh, next year. Well, gentlemen, that's very exciting stuff. And as all the listeners know, we like to end up with each of our guests on a couple of quick hitters. So to the both of you, what's your favorite sport? My favorite sport is soccer. Am? Sailing. Favorite food? Ramen noodles. Sushi. Last non-medical book that you've read? Bad Blood. I read the same one, Bad Blood, yes. It's a great book. Something that you enjoy about Cleveland? I love Cleveland. I have two small boys, and Cleveland is a beautiful city with great orchestra, museums, and a great place to raise a family. Uh, Diversity and the lake. Well, that's fantastic stuff, and we're very, very excited that uh, this collaboration has started and look forward to future increased benefits for all of our patients. So for more information on Cleveland Clinic's Endoluminal Surgery Center, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash digestive. That's clevelandclinic.org slash digestive, D-I-G-E-S-T-I-V-E. And to speak with a specialist at the Endoluminal Surgery Center, please call 216 444 1244. That's 216 444 1244. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thank, Thank you, you so Scott much for having us. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts. <laughs>